everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Mark Nielsen, Professor of Human Anatomy at the University of Utah. Mark joined us for the second webinar in a four-part series on teaching anatomy and physiology, where he discussed the evolutionary and developmental patterns that clarify the structural organization of the peripheral nervous system. Let's dive in. Why is there no autonomic innervation from C1 to C8 and L2 to S1? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, this goes back to, again, the, the, you have to understand that our bodies are part of a big evolutionary story in our vertebrate family. And that all this stuff really starts back 500 million years ago with the very first vertebrates, the fishes. And so just like we saw that yolk sac, we don't really have a really functional yolk sac, right? I mean, we're tied into mom, into a uterine wall and kind of modify it. But you got to remember that everything started nourishment wise through a yolk sac. We still have one. We've just annexed a little different variation on how to get our nourishment. But all the things we have are parts of an ancient evolutionary past. And we don't throw them completely aside. They're still really key in our development story and who we become and what we become. And one of the cool things you have to realize, if you look at the early origins of the autonomic system, they were just like we see cranial sacral and thoracolumbar, or more central part of the embryo on the two ends because of that yolk sac and where the gut tube was developing and where the vessels were developing, but they were right against each other. So the cranial end went a little into the cervical. Then you started the sympathetic. Then it went into the parasympathetic at the caudal end. And there were no gaps. There were no gaps in those earliest vertebrates. But guess what? It's kind of cool. When do you think the gaps arose? Anyone, I guess you can't really talk to me, but guess when the gaps arose? And it's such a neat story because you see it, it's when the limbs start to form. And when the limb buds get big and there's big dominant skeletal muscle anatomy heading out into the limb bud, the autonomics get pushed to either side of it. And so those areas where you start to see limb bud formation, some way crowd out the autonomics to either side. And so there's where we see the gaps now in vertebrates that have bigger, more well-developed limbs like ourselves. Pretty cool. Really cool. Okay. Hopefully that answered your question. And I'm going to move on to another question here. So this person has asked, why does the parasympathetic system innervate the heart if you say it only innervates the smooth muscle of the gut tube? Yeah. And so this, again, it goes back to, I mean, anciently in the really ancient beginnings of the vertebrate body, we saw this very simple pattern. But we can look at our anatomy now, and I can say, okay, I know sympathetic also does my sweat glands, my erector pili muscles, in addition to blood vessels, right? And and, and it's 
gone into other places and I can say, oh, my parasympathetic. Well, I know it, it does my heart and it does some of the genital stuff, but those are areas where it could get. Why don't you ever see parasympathetic out anywhere in the body wall? Because it was never there. There were never pathways there. So that's why glands, sweat glands, erector pili muscles, anything in my body wall has to be sympathetically innervated because it was the only system that was ever there based on the origins of the system. Whereas the heart was right in there by the gut tube. Some of the genital stuff that the parasympathetic can do is because that's an outgrowth of the gut tube. You know, the urogenital system forms from part of the gut tube. I mean, part of the urogenital system comes from gut tube anatomy. And so it's areas where we have that potential overlap, where over millions of years of evolution, we could then annex multiple control systems into an area. And so like the heart's a great example, as vertebrates came bigger and we needed more control of our blood pumping and activity levels. Now we had two systems, one that could speed up the heart and one that could slow it down because we could annex both of those nervous systems onto this organ because it was possible because they were both potentially right there. But you don't see any parasympathetic stuff out in the limbs or out in the body wall because it was never there. And so you have to use what's there, see? So there's this nice logic. That's fantastic. We're going to move on to our next question. So this question is from Corey. Corey has asked, do you have a stance or some thoughts regarding the idea that we should consider pelvic autonomics to be sympathetic rather than parasympathetic? Yeah. And again, I think there's that, that's a, a recent thing that was brought up. And I think people, again, who really understand and how we're, how we're describing this realize that you have sacral what we're going to call parasympathetic, a cranial sacral distribution that goes to the gut tube, you know, that's classically what you would call parasympathetic. But there's also true sympathetics down there. There's sympathetics everywhere. I mean, the sympathetic system, that's the widespread system because anywhere there's a blood vessel, you're going to have sympathetic system. The sympathetic system over 500 million years of evolution has been able to adapt and do some things to the gut also. Why? Because it was always going there through blood vessels. So there's still anatomically a parasympathetic component, what we would call the cranial sacral component down there in the pelvic region, right? And then there's sympathetic that spreads into the everywhere. I mean, sympathetic's everywhere. So it, it's just, again, going back to really understanding the origins of this system evolutionarily, developmentally, and then how we've named them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I will move on to our next question. So this question is from Nicole. Is it safe to assume that the number of somites match the number of cranial and spinal nerves, one for each level of the body, so to speak? Yeah, good question, Nicole. Not, not quite. I mean, there's a series of pre-cervical somites, right, that we, that we call the occipital somites that get associated more with the cranial nerves and some of the head development. So those are going to be involved with, you know, up at that head end. And then there's a group of somites towards the tail end 
that where you have more initially, but then the tail really regresses. I mean, we had a nice little tail when we were in embryos, but that really starts to regress. And those somites um, don't develop to the same degree as that tail regresses. You go through some apoptosis, you know, program cell death down in there, and those those somites really reduce. And so, in the embryonic somite count, there's a few more, more than what we end up with as vertebrae and spinal nerves and body segments in the end, just because how things develop and regress. Cool. And our next question is from Wendy. Wendy has asked, I'm curious how much embryology you teach undergrad or lower division anatomy students. Hi, Wendy. Great question. And I, 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 I teach, I mean, I'm a believer, just like I tried to show here, that if I can just understand a little bit of developmental anatomy, enough to make me dangerous as a student, I can understand a lot more. So I, I help them understand that basic vertebrate body plan because from that, I can build every muscle really easily. And I can build, you know, from the somites. I can help them understand how the gut tube pushes into the coelom and why we have these salomic membranes, you know, why there's a visceral and a parietal and a mesentery. I can help them understand, because you saw where those urogenital ridges were, why the kidneys are retroperitoneal, you know, and don't have a mesentery, <coughs> excuse me, like a, like a gut organ. I can help them understand this pattern of muscles in the wall, because like I showed you, that hypaxial muscle forms a subvertebral mass, a four-layer lateral wall, and a ventral muscle. And I can show now those six muscles in the neck, in the thorax, in the abdomen, in the pelvis. That's all the muscles we learn, and they come from those six. Now that they know those patterns, now they see why the nerves, why there's a dorsal ramus and a ventral ramus. And as I understand these little migrations, I've set up the whole nervous system. Up in the head, I, if I understand those branchial arches, those are kind of like the somites of the head that now I know why hey, this cranial nerve goes to these muscles because they came from that arch. This cranial nerve goes to these muscles because they came from that arch. So I give them a little developmental overview, enough knowledge base that when I then teach the anatomy, I keep reiterating that. See, that comes from this, that comes from this. Let's build it from this. And then everything starts to make sense so logically and they don't have all these why questions. Why, why, why? Well, look at it. We answered it. Now you know why. And so trust me, I've been doing it for 35 years and you don't have to get all caught up in tons of developmental that. You give them the foundation principles, you establish a little development out of that and the body makes so much sense. That's a really awesome way to approach it. I think as someone who did anatomy, <laughs> Myself in undergrad, it's a lot of memorization. And I feel like if you can find logical ways to remember the anatomy, then students will do better and they'll learn faster and f they'll retain that information longer. So that's really, really awesome, Mark. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of my arguments. I mean, I, we always emphasize so much lately, flipped classrooms, active learning, blah, blah, blah. But then we just have them watch something that they have to memorize, then we come and help them reinforce how they memorized. I'm a believer that we want to show them how to learn. Why is the learning logical? Why does this structure make sense? How does it come about? And when I can see that, then it's not just a lecture here, memorize this. Even if I now want to do a flipped classroom, at least I've given them now the ability to think about it better. So when they come back, now let's ask those questions and see how we think it through. It's so important to see, not just teach them this is this, this is this, this is this, memorize it, help them see the logic in this. It, it, we're going to build it. We're going to build it. If I watch a building get built, I understand that building a lot better than if I just come and look at a built building. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's why this is so critical. Yeah, that's really awesome. All right, we have time for one more question. This question comes from Karen. Karen has asked, why are preganglionic neurons myelinated and the postganglionic neurons not myelinated? Yeah, another pretty good question there. And, and one of the things you, you really need to see is, again, as the cells are developing, remember these are these crest cells, and the, the migratory crest cells move away from the rest of the crest population. So that crest population that stays put that's where the glial cells are developing that help myelinate. And as those crest cells that move away to become the postganglionics, in, where they're seeking the smooth muscle developing in blood vessels in the gut tube, see, they move away from those glial cells that can myelinate them. And so they never get myelinated. See, that's another great understanding point here. Whereas when you're back up in that crest population, see the glial cells weren't migratory cells. And so then they surround the sensory neurons. So you have many myelinated sensory neurons, but not those postganglionics. See, they migrate away and never get that chance to get myelinated. Good question. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.